On a snowy day in January of 1853, two months after his election to the presidency and two months before his inauguration, Franklin Pierce rode the train back from Anover, Massachusetts, which is near Boston, to his home in New Hampshire. Trains were such a new innovation at the time. Just imagine what it's like to be going at these speeds that seem incredible and impossible to people who are used to riding horses and carriages from place to place. He was with his wife and their 11-year-old son, Benny, and they're all on their way back from the funeral of a family friend. So just as their train picks up speed past the wintry, barren landscape around Andover, a coupler on the train broke, and the car, the train car that the Pierces were in, fell off the tracks. It rolled straight down an embankment, and there was one death from the accident, only one death on the train. It was their son, Benny, whose head was crushed and partially decapitated right in front of their eyes. This was the image that Franklin Pierce was still seeing over and over and over when he entered the White House. At his inauguration, he wouldn't swear on the Bible. He was so sure that God was angry at him and that his son's horrible death was punishment for his sins. I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post, and this is the 14th episode of Presidential. We shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. Little baby Franklin Pierce was born in rural New Hampshire in 1804. He had gray eyes. He was one of eight children, and his father had fought in the American Revolution and was active in local New Hampshire politics. Franklin Pierce ended up going to Bowdoin College in Maine, where he was quite popular and handsome, and he became good friends with his classmate Nathaniel Hawthorne who then goes on to write The Scarlet Letter. Hawthorne would also eventually write Pierce's own campaign biography when he's running for president. Right after college, when Pierce is in his early 20s, his father was elected governor of New Hampshire. And soon after that, Pierce got into politics himself. He was only 24 years old when he was elected to the state legislature. And then in 1832, when he's only about 28 years old, he ends up elected to the U.S. Congress. He's a skilled orator, and of course it's also important to know that Franklin Pierce is a Democrat. So it's an exciting time for him to head to Washington because this is right as Andrew Jackson is starting his second term as president. Jackson, of course, is the father of the Democratic Party that Franklin Pierce is a part of. He had a reputation as what was called at the time a doe-face, uh, that is, uh, a northern man with southern principles, even though he was from New Hampshire. He was sometimes known as the Young Hickory, um, a follower of, of old Hickory, Andrew Jackson. That's historian James McPherson, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning book on the Civil War called Battle Cry of Freedom. As a Democrat, Franklin Pierce is not big on big government, 
or the idea of a U.S. bank. And while he's in Congress and then the Senate, he's basically just voting along the party line. He isn't passing any huge legislation of note with his name on it. He is, however, getting a name and a reputation around Washington for his drinking and his socializing. And in the course of that, he's strengthening his friendship with others in the Democratic Party, who at this point are mostly Southerners, particularly Jefferson Davis, who would one day be the leader of the Confederacy. During this time, Pierce ends up marrying Jane Appleton, whose father was actually a former president of Bowdoin College. And Jane is not a fan of alcohol. She is not a fan of parties. She is not a fan of Washington. And so in 1841, Pierce decides to resign his Senate seat, and they move back to New Hampshire. A little while after that, he decides it's really important for him to get some military experience. So he has a not-so-illustrious stint as a brigadier general in the Mexican War. What happens is that he falls off his horse, and he gets his leg crushed, and he's in so much pain that he faints. But... The soldiers around him end up, um, you know, kind of making fun of him for this, and so they give him the name Fainting Frank, which sticks for a while after he leaves the war. In 1852, though, he kind of remarkably ends up back in politics, and not just back in politics, but the Democratic Party's nominee for president. For that election, there were actually a number of other bigger-name prominent Democrats who were running, But when they get to the convention, none of these candidates ends up being able to appease a big enough majority of the delegates to get the nomination. So Pierce's name ends up thrown in the mix at the 11th hour, and James McPherson says that this happens, and he actually secures the nomination, in large part because he's the type of person who isn't going to ruffle any feathers and who will just adhere to whatever the party leadership wants him to be. Pierce was somebody who was a kind of non-entity compromise, uh, who could be be manipulated by the stronger elements within the party. Uh, He was a loyal Democrat, and the Democratic Party at that time was controlled by its southern faction, its pro-slavery faction, and uh, he was basically their candidate, Um, and um, served them well uh, in his four-year presidency. During his stretch in the White House from 1853 to 1857, Pierce is definitely listening to his party's strongest Southern voices. And you can imagine that if Pierce was more the type to follow the party line than to carve his own path even before taking office, certainly after this horrific death of his son, He's grieving in a way that empties him of any bright, powerfully optimistic vision of his own. And he ends up in a position to rely even more on the advice and guidance of others. I asked James McPherson what it would be like if we could just zap ourselves back in time 160 years to see President Pierce in the White House. Uh, His lack of sociability... Uh, and I think uh, some lack in firmness of character was exacerbated by that tragic accident, and his wife uh, sort of went into seclusion uh, as a consequence of that. She was very depressed, 
and so things didn't start off very well for him on a personal basis. And on a, on a political basis, things sort of got worse during his the course of his presidency. And so he was not he was not a happy man, and he was not a, a successful president in, in any sense of that word. I think. Pierce's wife Jane became known as the Shadow in the White House because of the way that she just keeps to herself in mourning and wanders the halls like a ghost. Pierce, of course, was devastated too, and he's ridden with nervous anxiety. Jane had not wanted him to be president, and she felt strongly that it was this, as she saw it, this darkness and sinfulness of his political ambition that was responsible for their son Benny's death. Benny's life, she thought, had been given to God almost in some sort of dark trade for Franklin Pierce becoming president. In his inaugural address, he said to the small crowd that had gathered on a really cold, blustery day, quote, You have summoned me in my weakness. You must sustain me by your strength. Well, shortly thereafter, his vice president, William Rufus King, died from tuberculosis and was never replaced. So the people Pierce ends up leaning on most are figures like Jefferson Davis, who becomes his Secretary of War. By this point, the Democrats have lost many of their northern anti-slavery members, so it really is more and more becoming a party that's defined by its slaveholding interests. The Democratic Party was even more pro-slavery than it had been in the previous decade, and Pierce um, went along with that. Uh, he was not necessarily a uh, fanatic pro-slavery advocate, but he was loyal to the leadership of his party and to the policy and ideology of his party. And uh, during his presidency, he repeatedly caved in. Uh, one of those issues was the so-called filibustering, that is, uh, a number of um, Americans, especially Southerners, who formed sort of private armies, invaded uh, Mexico, invaded Nicaragua, uh, invaded Cuba, uh, with the hope of, uh, Cuba was a slave society, with the hope of uh, annexing Cuba to the United States. And Pierce sort of uh, turned the other way and allowed these people uh, to violate American uh, neutrality legislation. In 1854, his uh, ambassadors to Spain France and um, Britain uh, got together in Ostend, Belgium, and issued the Ostend Manifesto, uh, which said that Cuba should become part of the United States and the United States should do whatever was necessary to acquire Cuba, which created a firestorm, as you might imagine, in American politics. Uh, and it never happened, but Pierce supported that uh, as part of his uh, pro slavery uh, agenda. Another feature of his time in office, and another example of his support for the Southern interests in his party, was his enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Law, which, as we learned last week, was signed into law by his predecessor, Millard Fillmore. And this law basically puts the government on the hook for helping capture escaped slaves. Uh, he, again, strongly uh, supported efforts to enforce that legislation which was uh, bitterly hated in the North and was one of the divisive issues in the 1850s that eventually led to secession and war. 
And the most um, controversial and notorious example of that was the Anthony Burns affair. Uh, and then the third issue, which became the most uh, uh, divisive issue of all, was the question of slavery in the territories. In 1854, under Southern pressure, Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois introduced what came to be called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Pierce gave in to pressure from uh, Douglas himself uh, and and um, made it a party issue, uh, using all the powers of the presidency to persuade reluctant Northern Democrats. The bill passed, and it led to the um, a small civil war in Kansas. All of these things happened on his watch, and I think that uh, he deserves um, um, the, the blame or the responsibility uh, for uh, his weakness uh, in, in deferring to Southern leadership in the party, and which which eventually uh, led to um, bitter divisions within the party that made it possible for Lincoln to be elected six years later. We're going to dive a little deeper now into Pierce's support of the Fugitive Slave Law, and in particular, as James McPherson had mentioned, this Anthony Burns affair that took place in Boston in 1854. What happened was that a 19-year-old slave in Virginia named Anthony Burns ran away in 1853 and headed north all the way up to Boston. He lived there and worked there for about a year, and then under this Fugitive Slave Act, he ends up being captured and put on trial to be sent back to the master in Virginia. Well, this sets off abolitionists and those with anti-slavery views in Boston who are just outraged at the idea, and a group of them end up storming the courthouse where Burns is having his trial. They're attempting to free him, but in the course of it, they end up killing a U.S. Marshal. President Pierce decides to make an example of this case, and he sends in federal troops to quell the rioters, and Burns ends up being sent back on a ship to his slave owner in Virginia. To better understand why this was such an important tipping point, and what Pierce's role was in this in particular, I called up Edna Green Medford, who's the chair of Howard University's History Department. Hello, Edna. Thanks for talking with me about this. Oh, my pleasure. I know the the basic details of the Anthony Burns trial, and by the time this happens, obviously the Fugitive Slave Act had been around for a couple of years by now. That's right. Um, why though? Why did this this trial in particular become such a a flashpoint? This became a flashpoint because it happens in Massachusetts one of the places where you had a significant number of people who were involved in helping fugitives from slavery. And in this instance, they cannot help this poor man. And so they really understand what little power they had to do something about slavery. And so I imagine, too, that this just also made the horrors of slavery real for Northerners in a way that was... um closer and and vivid to them. Yeah, and especially since it comes on the heels of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, too. You know, there, there are all of these people across the North who are reading 
about slavery in a way that they hadn't. Even though it's a fictional account, it's still very vivid. And so people get a sense of what the horrors of slavery truly are. And then you have Anthony Burns come along, a real live human being who had escaped slavery. And now he's being returned. And it makes it so real to so many people. And what is President Franklin Pierce's role Um, in all of this. He's sending in federal troops, right, to show his support of the law? He wants to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act. He's insisting that it be enforced. And so because of the reaction uh, of the people in Boston to what's happening to this young man, he sends troops, he sends a company of Marines, and there are all of these Boston police who are involved, and they are there to protect the rights of the slaveholder. And so Franklin Pierce does not come out of this looking like a good guy at all. And this must be, I mean, I imagine that this must be even more shocking in a way to to the abolitionists and anti-slavery voices in Boston because this is a president who actually grew up in New Hampshire, that not all that far from Boston. Absolutely. And, and keep in mind that none of this is happening in a vacuum. You know, this is the crucial decade. And so it's not just that you have one black man who's returned to slavery, but you have a confluence of events, all of these things happening at the same time. And it's getting the North very angry because they, they feel threatened. They feel that if you've got a northern president, a president who was born and reared in the north, being willing to side with these southerners, and many of them did, by the way. Franklin Pierce is not the only one. But when you've got this kind of thing happening, how long can you protect the freedom in the north? Talk about events not happening in a vacuum. This Anthony Burns affair is taking place at exactly the same time that President Pierce is signing the Kansas-Nebraska Act into law. Senator Stephen Douglas from Illinois proposes the idea that Kansas and Nebraska should become new territories and that when they do, the people in those territories should get to decide if there's going to be slavery or not. So why in the world does Douglas suggest this? Well, here's where we get into messy congressional maneuvering and special interests and trains. There's all this excitement and potential financial gain from the advent of railroads. And the railroad companies are pushing at this time to create a transcontinental route. Douglas wants them to start construction in Chicago and for that to be a terminus for this transcontinental line since, no surprise, his home state is Illinois. But in order to make this route possible and for it to, you know, end or start in Chicago, the railroad tracks would have to go through Nebraska. But they can't really build a railroad through Nebraska until Nebraska officially becomes a territory, which at this time it isn't. Well, Southerners don't support the idea of making Nebraska a territory because geographically Nebraska is north enough that under the Missouri Compromise, it wouldn't have slavery. And this would tip the delicate north-south slavery, anti-slavery balance. 
So this is why Douglas comes up with this solution to appease Southerners. He says, you know, forget that whole no slavery north of a certain latitude thing. Just let the people in these places decide for themselves the question of whether they're going to have slavery. This is where Congress basically throws the Missouri Compromise out the window. There's, of course, a ton more detail that we could go into here about the nuances of this Kansas-Nebraska bill and how it plays out, but just so we don't stray too far from President Pierce, the big point here is that Stephen Douglas convinces President Pierce to support this bill and to sign it into law. And what happens next is that a hugely bitter, bloody fight over slavery unfolds in these areas. People are pouring across the borders to try to rig the voting on whether to allow slavery. Violence is erupting. And Pierce, meanwhile, is distancing himself and basically saying that it's not the role of president to have any forceful hand in addressing this conflict. So the conflict just boils and boils and boils. I'm curious if you have any sense of what Pierce actually cares about or what's driving him. I mean, if he doesn't seem to have a sort of strong guiding principles and vision, is it just that he wants power or he's someone who just wants to please people? Like, what's motivating any of his actions or decisions? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure that uh, anybody has fully supplied the answer. It's He's one of these people who, presidents who lacked, I think, any kind of a, um, a larger vision for where the country ought to go. Uh, and as a consequence, he allowed himself to be manipulated by the strongest element within his party, which uh, was the Southern leadership and uh, and Stephen Douglas of, of Illinois, who was ambitious, of course, to become president himself. And Pierce uh, uh, just drifted along, led led by these stronger personalities who had a definite program, which was to uh, strengthen slavery and, and to expand slavery. I asked Edna Green Medford what leadership lessons she thinks we can take from Pierce's time in the White House and his particular role in these pivotal and transformational events that are leading towards civil war. It's interesting how little attention Pierce normally gets. We we barely remember his administration. But what we need to recognize is that these were very important times. And as a consequence, he was an important leader because of not just because of what he did do, but because of what he didn't do. And so the country needed someone at the time who could heal uh, the, the, the various divisions, who could bring people together, who could find a way, if not to compromise, at least to resolve some of these issues uh, in a meaningful way. But he was not able to do that. And so in the sense that he did not live up to what he might have done makes him very important. It, it doesn't mean, however, that Northerners were drawn closer to um, disunion and eventually to emancipation because of any one thing that he did or didn't do, but it's because his actions and inactions were a part of that whole era. It's easy for us, uh, in hindsight, to see what should have occurred 
uh, or what should not have occurred. And, and I don't know that we can criticize him for not having greater vision for America than he did. Um, those were the times that he had to deal with, and he was who he was. Uh, and he certainly was not that different from many of the other leaders we had had before Lincoln, of course. I wouldn't consider Pierce a weak president, but I would consider him one that sort of went along with the traditions of the others. Uh, it took someone uh, unusually strong to actually move out of that. James McPherson gave something of a different answer when I asked him the same question. You know, if we're thinking about presidential leadership, ultimately, what do you think are some of the biggest leadership lessons that we should be taking from Pierce's time in office? Well, he was a weak leader. Um, and and uh, I think his weakness is what uh, wound up uh, ruining basically his administration and, and harming, no question about it, harming the country. Uh, and so I suppose one lesson to, to be taken from that is that uh, the, the country does better if uh, if the president is a uh, is, is a strong leader with firm convictions and an ability to uh, to avoid uh, deferring to uh, a particular faction in the party that's going to divide the country uh, because that all of those things are what happened under under Pierce's weak leadership is there is there anything positive to note about Pierce's presidency? Well, I have a hard time identifying uh, anything positive. We're reading back into um, Pierce's administration, for that matter, Buchanan's administration that followed his, uh, from the events that happened in the 1860s and focusing on the shortcomings of their leadership and the way in which uh, some of their decisions made the situation worse. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to uh, to read history uh, because uh, the, the events of the Civil War were so crucial in determining the course of uh, American history that it really is necessary to explain how that happened and how Pierce and Buchanan administration um, helped to bring on that crisis. By the end of Franklin Pierce's one term in office, his party refused to support him for a second term. This is even though he's basically done exactly what the party has asked of him. But they throw their support instead to James Buchanan, who will go on to become the next president. Pierce was personally ravaged by these four years in the White House. A reporter at the time described Pierce as a wreck of his former self and said his face wears a hue so ghastly and cadaverous that one could almost fancy he was gazing on a corpse. And that comment is particularly powerful when you remember that, by most accounts, Pierce was the most handsome president that we've ever had, and he was definitely the youngest at the time that he took office. It was also rumored that when a friend asked Pierce what he was going to do upon leaving the role of president, he said, the only thing left to do is get drunk. Well, whether he actually said that is unclear, but there is proof that 
that is precisely what he did. Pierce had struggled with alcoholism his whole life, but after his presidency, he really starts drinking heavily and consistently, so much so that he dies at 65 years old in Concord, New Hampshire, from cirrhosis of the liver. His wife Jane had already passed away, and they never had any more children. If there's one date to remember from Pierce's administration, it's the year 1854. Because not only is this the year that the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Anthony Burns trial are rumbling over the country, but it's the year when, out of this pressure cooker, the Republican Party is born. And it's also this year, and against this backdrop, that a not very well-known man named Abraham Lincoln is crystallizing his anti-slavery views. He begins giving speech after speech about why slavery should not be allowed in these new territories, and how that would be a really important first step in ending slavery across the country. Special thanks to this week's guests, who were James McPherson and Edna Green Medford. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. Next week, we'll be discussing our only president to never be married, and who is also possibly our first gay president, James Buchanan. Like Franklin Pierce, Buchanan was a northerner who aligned himself very closely with southern interests. We are now one presidential episode away from Civil War. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that which they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration. Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.